0: Hi, my name is Terry Langford, and I'm an investigative reporter at Texas Tribune. Um, I cover several different issues, criminal justice, legal, and regulatory. I want to thank you all for coming this weekend. It's the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival, and welcome to our panel on the death penalty. We have four great panelists today who I'm excited to introduce you to. But before I do, I just want to remind everyone here that we're here for civil and respectful discourse. I know this is a topic that brings out highly charged emotions on both sides, but anyone who shouts, jeers, hisses, groans, or interrupts will be kindly asked to walk out in the hall. If you're tweeting today and you know at Texas Tribune, we encourage it. Please use the hashtags TribuneFest and TTFJustice on Twitter. Also, um, we'll have 15 minutes at the end of the session for panelists to answer questions from the audience. And one note, unfortunately, one of our panelists, David Dow, uh, the University of Houston Law Center professor, couldn't be here because of a medical emergency. Um, but let's get started, okay? Um, I'm going to introduce everyone from... I'm going to start here and move out. First, we have Senator Rodney Ellis, who many in Austin know. He's a former Houston City Councilman, and the, he was the Chief of Staff to the late U.S. Representative Mickey Leland. Uh, Senator Ellis was elected in 1990 to represent Houston's Senate District 13. He on, serves on the State Affairs, Natural Resources, and Transportation Committees. He also chairs the Senate Open Government Committee and the Board of Directors for the Texas Innocent Project. Senator Ellis holds a BA from Texas Southern, a master's degree from UT's LBJ School of Public Affairs, and a law degree from the University of Texas School of Law. Next up, I'm um, You guys have confused me. I had you in a different (laughs) order. I'm sorry about that. Next up, we've got Jim Willett, who's the executive director of the Texas Prison Museum in Huntsville. But of all the panelists here, he's the one with the most unique uh, view of the Texas execution system. Between 1998 and 2000, as warden of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Huntsville unit, he oversaw 89 executions. It's one of the busiest periods ever in the Texas death chamber. And we've got Catherine. Am I got you right? Yeah. Catherine Case is the executive director of the Texas Defender Service, where she has worked since 2002. The Defender Service works to reduce unfair use of the death penalty, trains lawyers, and consults with defense teams. Catherine has (laughs) represented clients facing capital punishment in Texas and New York State courts and has served as a learned counsel in federal court. She's also a member of the National Criminal Defense College in Georgia. And last but not least, we find you Matt. This is Matt Powell. He's the Lubbock County uh, Criminal District Attorney. I get points for knowing that, Matt.
1: That's right. I'm impressed.
0: <laughs> um, and he was appointed by Governor Rick Perry in 2005. He served in the DA's office since 1995 and he's been prosecutor since 1993. Powell was named Prosecutor of the Year for 2012 by the State Bar of Texas. He graduated from Texas Tech University with a B.A. in English and received his law degree from the University of Tulsa. So let's start. Um, For many of you who have been following the news in the past year, there's been a lot going on with uh, the secrecy and the way we execute prisoners. So I'm going to start off with the secrecy issues and sort of the lethal drug issue. But I also want to move on to, to we're going to kind of go to several issues that have popped up in the last year. In the past few years, the nation's supply of lethal drugs to execute death row inmates has very nearly dried up. European drug manufacturers of the drug stopped making it or making it hard for Texas Department of Criminal Justice and other prison systems from using it, and that's forced the prison systems to go to compounding pharmacies. And in the past year, we've seen a handful of executions take so long that in the case in Oklahoma, inmate Clayton Lockett died not of drugs but of a heart attack. In Arizona, it took Joseph Wood two hours to die from an injection of midazolam and hydromorphone. So, Catherine, I'm going to start with you. Is what we're seeing in the handful of executions with prolonged execution time a problem with procedures, or are are these execution outliers that are being hyped up in a 24-hour news cycle by both reporters and defense attorneys who need a new Eighth Amendment challenge in a system made bulletproof over the years?
2: We're at a point in Texas where we've had the least amount of openness about our execution process in the last few years as we've gone to compounded drugs. And what's notable about the botched executions in Missouri and Arizona is that those did involve compounded drugs, which is what we're using in Texas. That much we know. We don't know where we're getting it, um, and we have only the barest of information about um, efficacy and purity. And so, you know, carrying out an execution is the most serious thing that a state can do because it's taking the life of a resident of that state. Um, And so from my perspective, you know, we've also been known in Texas up till now for being having really good open government rules and letting residents know what's going on in our names. Um, but now we we have no idea um, where we're getting these drugs um, and and really what they're who's making them um, because the attorney general's office, after years of saying this was subject to the public information act, is now saying it's not. Um, so, as a proponent of open government, first as a newspaper reporter years 30 years ago, and now as a lawyer, I'm 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 just shocked by this because. This doesn't seem to me what Texas has been known for.
0: Let me follow up with Senator Ellis on that. Um, why haven't we seen lawmakers come out aggressively against the new secrecy in the death chamber? And is there a move behind the scenes now to help TDCJ pass a law that would codify what the Attorney General has already said that TDCJ can keep everything <coughs> about the drug secret? Um, we just haven't seen, you know. It, some critics have said this is more of a reporter, you know, complaint or a defense attorney cl- complaint. But we're not seeing hearing anything from, from lawmakers on this issue. Is there a particular reason why?
3: I'm not sure when the AG's recent uh, ruling came out, Catherine. May. When was it? In May?
0: May. We haven't heard much because we're not here. <laughs> uh, oh, you're but, always working. But I know you
3: are. Yeah, when we're back in session, uh, you know, I think there ought to be transparency. And I, I haven't thought through... Uh, How I will approach the issue, uh, to be honest with you, I guess I'll not uh, announce my strategy today. But I would enjoy debating any of my colleagues who put in a bill to codify a decision and make it secret. And you'll see, I think you'll see an interesting alliance with uh, me and the Tea Party on that. You know, (laughs) I I, I always enjoy those. uh, Uh, We're recording this, right? Yeah, I always enjoy those (laughs) those, uh, interesting alliances, but uh, it's an uphill climb to make the argument for secrecy, and it'll be interesting uh, to have a discussion about how we got from a ruling saying you couldn't do it to one that says you couldn't. Now, you know, I'm not a criminal lawyer. I'm a corporate lawyer, but I do remember the question about stare decisis uh, on, on the bar exam, of course you don't have to do that with uh, AG's opinions, you know, I was in Lubbock the other day, Mr. D.A., and uh, it was interesting to hear General Abbott make reference to uh, my having asked it for a new AG's opinion on whether or not you could give someone a posthumous pardon, Mm -hmm. so that was reversing years of a common law tradition that came from an Anglo-Saxon tradition that the Anglo-Saxons had ditched. Uh, So you can clearly change in opinion, but that'll be interesting. I I think somebody would be hard-pressed to try to pass a statute to codify that ruling.
0: Um, Jim, I wanted to ask you a a couple things. If you could explain to the audience, you have a perspective shared by very few in this audience. And I'd like you to explain, it it might help people understand what we're talking about here, on how the execution process works. And I was wondering if you could give just a, a brief description from the time an inmate is placed on the gurney until the time of death. Can you explain how that process works?
4: Well, the inmate is, is uh, told to get on the gurney and uh, several officers strap straps down uh, on the body at various points. Uh, a medical team will then come in and put IVs in each arm. One is live and one is uh, back up. When they are done, uh, witnesses are brought into the witness rooms. And once they're in place there, the inmate is allowed to make a last statement. When that inmate is through with the last statement, he will let the warden know, and the warden gives a signal to the executioner to do what executioners do. And uh, shortly thereafter, at least it was my experience, that um, the person passed on. Uh, And I know we had one just this past week that... um, the, the doctor pronounced him dead at 624, which is a very reasonable time. It's the same kind of time we were doing when I was there.
0: You're right. Uh, the, that was the execution of Lisa Ann Coleman, and I think it was for the first time we've seen in the year that Texas has been using compounded drugs that we've seen the times they appear to be going down. Um, that's just one instance. We've seen an extended period of time um, lately where it's been... Uh, longer than uh, in the 20 minutes. Executions used to take uh, something like eight minutes and, now they're, and that was under the three drug cocktail. Now we're down to one drug and we're running out of that so we don't know what the next drug will be. I wanted to ask you too as a uh, to it, it seemed back when you were warden that details of the executions were much more open that we, we were able to find out more information now. Are you surprised at all by the secrecy that's been going on now, or is it something?
4: I hate to tell you, I really don't keep up with it. That <laughs> okay, that's all but right. But I know the prison system at times is concerned about things, and, and uh, at least from their perspective, would rather keep it quiet.
0: Well, and we know f- as, as part of history, they've kept the names of the execution team have been secret for, I think, since they started
4: When they started lethal injection in 1982, I think uh, all of the executioners have voiced that they do not want the public to know who they are. If you go back from 1924 to 64 when we were doing electrocutions, you can read newspaper articles and pretty easily find out who the executioner was.
0: Okay. Um, I want to shift a a little bit to something that's happened in... Uh, Just this past week, we we have had an execution, but we've also uh, seen the overturning of uh, a capital conviction of Hannah Overton, which was very interesting in the past week. And Matt, you're not left out of the conversation. We're going to bring you in, I promise. Um, And if anyone's been following the news, um, in Corpus Christi briefly, Hannah Overton uh, was accused of... Uh, poisoning her adopted son, or soon-to-be adopted son, with salt. What's happened now is the Court of Criminal Appeals, after seven years, has overturned that conviction um, because there was testimony that would have proven or could have been convincing, um, help me out, Catherine, if I'm wrong on this so far, (laughs) Um, that would have been convincing that she was not poisoning it. I mean, that, that, that um, testimony would have shown that the child was eating uh, a lot of soup that day and had a lot of salt in the system, and, and it was not something that she, she did um, on purpose. So what I'm, I'm wondering if you can explain, Matt, how cases like this, this seems like a woman who has never been charged with a crime I'm I'm not asking you to comment. I mean, I know you're not familiar with everything about this crime, but we're seeing a lot of cases, or we do see some cases in Texas, where the (coughs) application of a capital charge is not uniform, and it seems to be we're applying a capital charge on something that will get overturned or knocked down. You know, it doesn't even have to go to the criminal... uh, Criminal, uh, court of Criminal Appeals, it can happen in a bond reduction hearing, is what does a prosecutor do to consider um, a capital crime? Do you just apply it if you find two crimes, an underlying crime or and, and the crime of murder? I mean, what does a prosecutor's office do? I'm just...
1: Well, that, that's a lo- that's a long answer to that question. I'm uh, sorry. You know, what, I'm because sorry. I, because I mean, and there's a couple of different thwarts that you brought up. This deal that happened in Corpus Christi, that case is not overturned because you know it's a it's a kid under the age of ten. Right. That was done. It was. It's overturned because some information wasn't given to the defense. <laughs> right. Uh, that's a whole different issue. Okay. Uh, and so I, I think, especially you're talking about transparency. Uh, you know, we instituted an open file policy. I mean, years ago, when it wasn't popular to have an open file policy, uh, we give everything and anything to the defense as soon as we get it. Uh, it's all online. Uh, we are a paperless office, and so as soon as we get attorney of record, and in our area we have the capital murder public defender's office. Uh, they usually represent uh, someone charged with capital murder, and so they have access to everything that we've ever seen as soon as we see it. So that's a different area. Yeah. Uh, as far as, as, as trying to decide on what case you proceed as far as the death penalty is concerned, uh, you, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing. I, you know, I, I've tried probably 60, 60 or 70 murder cases. I've tried about 15 or, or so capital murder cases. And, uh, you know, when you, uh, when you start my – I used to tell people I couldn't wait to get to my – profession, the, you know, the part in my profession where I was trying these cases because I've reached the pinnacle of my profession. Well, there's not a case I'd least rather try now. I do believe that it's necessary on some circumstances. We, we start, and all I can do is speak for our office, and it's, it's left to each elected DA of, of their county whether or not they're going to seek a death penalty in, in a particular case. The way we do it, uh, we start uh, trying to find everything and anything uh, we can about a defendant. And that starts at grand jury with their relatives, with their friends, try to learn about them, try to, to see who we're dealing with. We, try, we start back from elementary school records and try to make determinations on, on all that. And Then ultimately uh, we have about four or five folks in our office that sit down and we we uh, uh, decide whether or not it's appropriate in this particular case. Um, you know, I've been in Lubbock since 95. We probably have had, I don't know, 45 or so capital murders that were eligible for the death penalty. We've sought it on about 10 of those. Wow. Uh, and so, uh, obviously it's a, it's something we take extremely serious. We, we're not, we don't sugarcoat it. I, I know at some point I'm going to ask a jury to kill somebody. Uh, and I, and I understand the the significance of that, believe me. Uh, and so we, we, uh, Uh, you know, we we go through a long process in trying to make that decision.
0: Okay. I'm wondering, um, one of the things that's been criticized by Texas or death penalty in general, is it takes so, you know, we have inmates that are on uh, death row for 10, 20, over 20 years through the appellate system. And I was wondering, uh, Catherine and Matt, if your thoughts on... um, what what can be done to sort of, um, you know, I hate, for lack of a better word, sort of streamline the appellate process here. I guess what I'm trying to say is um, when we're talking about, like, should there be some sort of timeline on requesting DNA testing rather than wait until all matters are resolved? Or um, should the state... Um, be able to seek death on accomplice witness testimony, even though it must be corroborated. I mean, is there ways to kind of get the appellate, the appeals streamlined a little bit better so that we don't see this going on for 10 and 20 years?
2: I think the person to ask that question of is Anthony Graves. Anthony was on death row for 14 years. He was set for execution twice. He was not a DNA exoneration. He's an exoneration based on the fact that exculpatory material was withheld from his lawyers and that the Fifth Circuit said that false and misleading testimony had been presented to the jury that sentenced him to death. Now, I suppose we could have, you know, built a superhighway to the death chamber for Anthony, but then we'd be having the argument that we're now having in Cameron Todd Willingham's case about whether junk science in Cameron's case was used to convict him and sentence him to death. I mean, this is, that's one level of that. The other problem that we have is that in 1996, um, Congress, with the direction of then-President Bill Clinton, passed the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. What that means is that every case that we're, where someone was sentenced to death after 1996 goes through the appellate process much more quickly. Anybody who was sentenced to death pre-1996 goes on a slower track. That's how we have slower cases in the system, and quick cases. I mean, we've had people who have gone to their, the, their date with the executioner within six years in the state. So um, what we really have is a system of a couple of tracks, and some of this reflects uh, federal law, which Senator Ellis has nothing to do with, and it reflects our appellate court system. But for those who really want to make this a quick process, you've got to look at the guys who were exonerated none of them were exonerated quickly. They were exonerated slowly, in part because until recently, um, there were all appointed lawyers all throughout the system, even at post-conviction. And the quality of representation you got there depended on who got appointed and how many resources they had. Um, So now we actually have an office of capital writs that does that first round of Post conviction appeals, past the direct appeal, and with luck, we're gonna have better representation and we hope fewer innocent people on death row. But that's the tension.
0: Did you?
1: Well, obviously, Catherine and I disagree on lots of things, and, and, but on this one, we probably don't so much. I do think that most of the problems that you see on cases, on capital murder cases, especially uh, that get overturned. Have been because of, of horrible representation, uh, and and I mean you have examples of lawyers falling asleep, lawyers using substances. I mean all kinds of things during a capital murder trials. So I I would agree with her that that is probably at the forefront the the biggest issue that we face, and we are taking some steps. I think we did we have taken some steps to uh, uh, to do, to address that. As I said, we we have the capital murder public defender's office and our in our county, it's where it started. But it now it stretches over I don't know all of all but except for the major cities, I think, is counties, yeah, 160 counties, what Catherine said. And so it's really expanding out and has multiple offices throughout the county. In my experience in, in working with those guys have, have been top notch. Jack Stoffreagan's the executive director of that and, and he's hired good people. Um, they zealously advocate for their client, they're smart. And I think when you see good representation at the trial stage, you don't have as many areas of appeal. Doesn't mean there's not gonna be lots of areas of appeal. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably differ in this and some of my colleagues. I, I have no pro, you know, I don't, you get somebody the death penalty, I, I don't know where it's written, you say, well, I, we need to kill this guy in 10 years or five years or where. I, I, I don't, I, I think you need to be 100% certain that the right things were done. Uh, and if that needs to be addressed through the appellate side, whether federal or state side through writs or direct appeals or whatever, then I have no problem
3: with that. I just want—I agree with those comments and I appreciate it. But I just add that most of these death penalty cases are coming out of my county. They're yes, coming sir. out of Harris County. I mean, it's the death penalty capital of the world. More people end up on death row out of Harris County than any place on the planet other than, I think, Nigeria, China, maybe Russia now. So more coming out of Texas, by the way, than any other state in the country or the federal government. I would flip the discussion. We ought to be trying to figure out how to speed up the process to make sure we get it right instead of trying to execute more people. I mean, it's not as though sitting on death row is like sitting in this classroom at the University of Texas. I mean, what's what's so bad about locking somebody up and throwing away the key? You know, and, and I say that from the vantage point of somebody who has fought a death penalty as acting governor of Texas in 2000, I presided over three executions. Mm-hmm. The other thing they ask is, <clears throat> what do you want to eat? Uh, and usually that's a discussion on, on the phone about what they ate uh, before the executioner has to inject the, uh, you know, the, the substance in the person's body. But look, you mentioned appointed counsel. They ought to, people ought to be running to put bills in to stop this system where the judge is the umpire and the referee, that's nuts. And none of us would let it happen with our kids. I mean, we, we gotta do something to uh, go back and make our DNA testing statute work because of a unanimous decision out of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Wonder what were they thinking, but it, you know, I gotta respect the decision of the court. Uh, but that, the, the rush ought to be to go make sure we get it right instead of trying to put more people on death row.
0: Okay. On that, um, I'm wondering, does anybody have any suggestions? One of the things that comes up time and again, and I've, I've seen it over and over again, does anyone have any suggestions on determining the definition of mental retardation to avoid the endless claims on appeal that deal with this vague definition? Do you have, I'll start with you, Matt.
1: Well, you're asking the easy questions today. How do we do that? You know, uh, again, I, I think you've seen this is an area that's still uh, that's still being litigated. Obviously, uh, that's still uh, in in a flux and still in a change. Uh, I think you've had some pretty good, solid definitions of what mental retardation is. It's just whether or not their guy fits those definitions has been the argument. Uh, and so, depending on uh, which expert that you talk to may have a different opinion of the same guy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't see any, any time in the near future that that's going to be... Uh, I think it's a very hot topic of litigation right now. I think it's probably the number one area of litigation right now. Uh, and so I don't see an end to that very soon.
3: We passed the statute in Texas. Well, I was the author of it, and Governor Perry vetoed it. I think in... Uh, 2001, and I think I put some version of it in, Catherine, at least several sessions. I did it last session. It does seem to me to be a tremendous waste of state resources. Now that the United States Supreme Court has ruled that it's cruel and unusual punishment to to execute someone who falls in that category. The term MR may not be politically correct, so Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what I use, but in the statute they say mentally... uh, retarded, and I think we ought to make another stab at it. Other states have passed statutes. The federal government, Well, all those cases from Texas ought to not end up being litigated to the United States Supreme Court, unless we just have money to waste. That money could be put in other places.
2: Well, what the Senator was talking about is that although the Supreme Court outlawed the execution of people with intellectual disability, which is what we now call it, in 2002, Texas still doesn't have a statute for determining that pre-trial or during trial. Instead, what we do is every judge in the state who's presented with this issue and every district attorney who's presented with this issue decides sort of on an ad hoc basis what the procedures are going to be for deciding this. And so you have some prosecutors who are very open-minded, and you have others who are not. And the other problem with it is the Court of Criminal Appeals um, took the scientific definition of mental (coughs) retardation, what we then called mental retardation, what we now call intellectual disability, and grafted on some additional factors, which are found nowhere in the science. And these are called the Briseño factors. And they ask things like, you know, could the person lie effectively in his own um, interest? Did he show leadership qualities? Trust me, I have talked to hundreds of psychologists, and those are the people who determine whether someone is intellectually disabled, and not one of them says that those are questions that they ask. When determining whether to diagnose someone as having an intellectual disability. So, so I think that this is a situation where, um, you know, I think even the Court of Criminal Appeals would say, we're not scientists, we're judges. Um, and, and we stepped into the breach. Um, but I think, you know, this is an area that cries out for leadership from the legislature to define intellectual disability for determination in capital cases, and to set out procedures for determining that at trial. Um, And and after 12 years, in my point of view, you know, it's time. We've we've watched it happen with with the rest of us, courts, prosecutors, defense attorneys, struggling on our own, and really it's time for the legislature to step in and, and lead.
3: I do recall when the bill passed in 2001, and some of my colleagues would ask, well, can someone fake, back then the term was MR, but can you fake intellectual disability? Well, no, you really can't. Usually that is a record that is developed. So I tell one of my colleagues, you know, you don't just develop intellectual disability on the Senate floor. Now, I may change my attitude the longer (laughs) I'm here. Uh, But you know, usually, I, I said, if someone is gonna tell that child, Rodney, I know you're destined to end up on death row. So let's start it right now so we can get everything in the record to prove that you are intellectually disabled so when you get convicted, we can get life for you instead of being executed. And I said, well, you know what, if somebody is that demented to do that to a child, when they commit the crime, lock them up and throw away the key. Because maybe we should have done something in terms of family protective services to keep a child from having to be coached to play intellectually.
1: Uh, disabled in Well, we laugh about that, but again, there's issues that are never even brought up at trial for intellectual disabilities or mental retardation or whatever you want to say, but that doesn't prevent uh, appellate lawyers from bringing those issues up on the appellate level. Uh, so they now have become intellectually disqualified or whatever. Uh, and so, uh, you know, these, these are, I, I think it's a vast issue because you not only have the issues at trial, you're now having them on the appellate side when it wasn't even brought up at all. Uh, during, the, during the trial proceeding.
0: I was wondering also if um, you could talk about uh, your thoughts on the status of those on death row convicted under um, arson expert evidence from pre-2000. And I'm referencing, of course, the Todd Willingham case who was executed in 2004 um, on arson expert evidence. And wondering if you all have any thoughts on that, well, what about those pre-2000 that are on death row now? Catherine, you have any thoughts?
2: You know, the, the, the legislature did something really good last session, so I should start with something positive, <laughs> right, after that last crack. Um, and, and it passed a new writ, and it's, it's a, a, a scientific evidence writ where lawyers are allowed to reopen the case if they can show that bad science, junk science was presented at the trial and caused the conviction, or there's been an advancement in the forensic science that would allow you to show more likely than not that the person would have been um, found not guilty at trial. So there is now this new writ that allows us to go in and reopen cases where there has been bad science, And in fact, we're waiting for the Court of Criminal Appeals to rule on the first couple of writ cases that were filed, one involving a baby death, the other in, in fact, I think they're both involving baby deaths. And, and we're going to see how the court interprets this statute. So we're better off today than we were. But here's the, the problem with the statute. There ain't no money for lawyers to go out and hire experts to help you show that the original science was bad. So imagine you're a do-gooder lawyer. You want to help an innocent guy or somebody you believe to be innocent to get out of the pokey. You have to get out your checkbook and hire the experts to evaluate the evidence. And let me tell you something else about forensic scientists. People who are real scientists, really qualified, with PhDs and other initials after their names, they're expensive, really expensive. Pediatric pathologists, you're looking at 450 to 500 bucks an hour depending on how many postgraduate fellowships they've had at major medical centers. And so suddenly the money starts to stack up. And because we, we didn't make any provision in this statute for getting... Experts to help the defense lawyers, I do wonder how many people will be able to take advantage of it because you are going to need experts to come in and say, you know what, the arson was bad. The arson science was bad, and here's why it was bad. Or, you know what, this pathologist really didn't do a good evaluation of why this child died. Here's really why I think the child died. So that's where we are.
1: Go ahead, Shane.
3: I think the system ought to have some mechanism to review those cases. Uh, I think people at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future, will sit in these classrooms and look back at what we did and wonder what were we thinking. Uh, at some point, you know, just like we abolished a lot of things in our past that we're not proud of, they're going to ask, well, what were you thinking? Uh, you know, you look at that Willingham case and how the system did everything it could to try to protect itself. I mean, what's wrong with admitting that, you, that you're sorry? You make a mistake? I mean, it's a government program. That's what the death penalty is. Now, who, who says we in government get anything else right all the time? I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just, it'll, be, it'll be one of the unfortunate blemishes On our society, at some point, when people look back at the history books and see what we are doing today.
0: Hmm. Let me go back to something that we started with, which was the secrecy issue. And I'm wondering because Texas and so many of the prisons are struggling to find drugs at this point in time, do you see um, this as the push at all, and particularly in Texas? To have a conversation about—I mean—is this a tipping point on the death penalty itself?
1: I don't think so, um, but you know, I, I may be wrong. But uh, again, I, you know, I, I haven't even thought really until you sent me an email about that topic, <laughs> uh, as far as what our, my position was on it. Right. Um, because you know, again, I, I don't—I think that is a legislative issue. I think mm-hmm. that's a penitentiary issue. I think they're the ones that need to to come to some resolution on that one way or the other uh, i we 've never got as far when I say we our association has never got caught up in the mechanism of right. of the execution or anything i don 't think it 's our business uh, really uh, uh-huh. and so uh, but i don 't think uh, I still think that there's uh, the sentiment. Again, I may be wrong, but I think the sentiment uh, is still that it's it's a, an appropriate punishment on some cases, with the majority of our with our, with our citizens.
0: Let me ask you something, Jim. Um, have there been? I mean, you were there for four years. Um, three years. Three years. Um, other than what witnesses have reported at the time, I mean, have there ever? Has the, pro- has the system had problems before? Did you ever witness any problems?
4: The, the only problems that we ever had while I was there was trying to find a vein. I mean, that was the biggest problem we ever had. Yeah. No problems other than that.
0: Right, okay. No. So, I mean, that's what we're trying to come to grips with right now is what we're seeing right now um, nationwide, whether that is you know, is it the result of the kind of drugs we're using? Is it the result? I mean, there is no science on this, unfortunately. And that's what a lot of criticism is, is that the drugs we're using, it's, it's, it's you know, we're testing it every time we use them because we did, there is no great science on this. So I think that that's one of the things we're kind of wrestling with is what we're seeing is it, are these anomalies or are there real problems with the drugs?
2: absent more openness, how would we possibly know? I mean, it's through the litigation that we found out, for example, that TDCJ for 20 years was using a DEA number from a hospital on the Huntsville prison grounds that hadn't existed to order drugs. Um, go ask your, your own doctor. I actually, go when I go see my doctors, I say, what would happen if you used somebody else's DEA registration number to <laughs> to order drugs? And they were like, are you serious? And, and I'm like, yeah, what would happen? And my my healthcare providers say, why, I think I'd have the DEA in my office with a warrant the next day. You know, it's, it's shocking to me that, that, that we were engaged in this, in this process using a DEA number for a, an institution that doesn't exist to order drugs, to lethally inject people. And, and, and that's why the openness is important not because I'm advocating for anyone to prosecute anyone in the prison system, but because, again, it's a serious process if we're going to take somebody's life in the name of the state of Texas. And, you know, as you've heard the district attorney of Lubbock County tell you, they work hard to get it right. Well, you know what? The system has to get it right all the way along the way. And his process in a courtroom is open and transparent. You can walk into a death penalty trial in Lubbock County, and you can watch how it's done. But according to TDCJ, you're no longer entitled to know where they're getting their drugs. And, and, and you know, if, if we were to give a PIA request, a Public Information Act request, to DPS and say, where do you order your bullets? I guarantee you, you'd be able to find out where they order their bullets. And those are used to take people's lives in the... Worst situations. I, well, you know, so I think we should be able to know where we're, get, that we're getting these drugs.
3: I think the transparency argument is one that uh, is politically uh, popular uh, in just about every sphere of what we do. In terms of lack of access to uh, the drugs, I think that's a, a different issue. Uh, so at some point, somebody may uh, lead to, it may lead to litigation on these compounding mm-hmm. issues because they are unregulated. Some states have stopped executions until this issue of access to the drugs is, is resolved. The process of stopping the death penalty in Texas is a bit more complicated under the law. Uh, even for a governor to do it, a governor can grant a 30-day reprieve. Even issues that come up like in the, the one case when I was president pro temp, they did a reprieve in the McGinn case whatever it was, 2000, uh, if, the Lord, if the court had scheduled another execution date before the DNA testing was done, well, what would we have done? Which is why I came up with the idea you ought to let a government do multiple reprieves. What if it took, what if they scheduled another execution in 90 days and it took 120? I and mean, We'd look pretty stupid, <laughs> look kind of strange to say what the court said do the DNA testing. Uh, but. Uh, you can only do a reprieve for the thirty days, so that's real issue. So it's, it's complicated to, to do it in Texas. Now, litigation is a separate issue, even on the compounding. Uh, something may come up. look, I wouldn't be at all surprised if somebody said, "If you couldn't get the drugs manufactured by someone out of Europe, they'll be asking for a secret grant to go do it in Texas." Don't want to encourage it, but I, I, I don't think we we'll, I don't think we'll be on the cutting edge of saying stop. Until that issue of access to the drugs is resolved.
0: Okay, um, I'm going to open it up uh, to any questions. Uh, if you see the microphones here, if you want to come up and and ask the panelists some questions, go ahead.
1: Well, I, I think, uh, number one, and, and again, I'm, all I can do is speak for myself, I, I've never let cost determine whether or not we are going to seek a death penalty in a particular case. As far as what, what does it benefit, uh, I think there are certain individuals, and again, like the senator implied, that, you know, it's, it's nice to talk about it in this classroom and everything else, but these cases don't happen in the classroom. I think there's evil in the world that is capable of continuing that evil and will continue to do it if they're, if they're left unchecked. You say, well, they're going to go to prison for life. How, how is that unchecked? Well, what most people don't know, if you're not a documented prison gang member or you're a child molester, chances of you being put into administrative segregation when you go to the penitentiary are very slim. Most capital murder defendants who get a life without parole sentence get a G3 classification, which is general population three on a three-level. It means they can be an outside trustee. It does mean they can go out there by themselves. They have to have supervision, but they have their free reign uh, of any type of, of particular, of a general population penitentiary. And they're not in a single cell where they can't, you know, and, they, and you still have instances that happen on single cells all the time with these, some of these individuals. And so I think you try to make a determination that is this one of those guys, and I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I try to make a determination, is this somebody that is going to hurt somebody else, whether that be another inmate, a guard, a nurse, a teacher, whoever. Uh, and and you, try to, you try to do that the best you can and, and instead of putting them in general population. So what benefit it has is that I don't have to look at another mother in the eye and say I could have stopped it the first time it happened, and I didn't do it. Uh, and so that's, that's how I would answer your question.
3: I think to a great extent, the perception is that uh, it will somehow deter crime. Whether it does or not, you know, one could debate it, but you could certainly make the argument uh, that if someone thinks if they commit a certain crime that they're going to be executed, that might make them think about it, somebody else think about it before they do it. And look, let's just be real. In America, our criminal justice system has evolved into an issue of punishment, it's retribution as opposed to rehabilitation. You know, I, I, I put my energy into a lot of the broader criminal justice issues, trying to make sure we get the right person. But if someone were to do harm, to kill someone in my family, in my family, I probably would want them to get to death penalty. And if I get to them before law enforcement, then they'll be trying to decide whether or not to, to give me the death penalty. So I, I do believe in the death penalty. If you do the polling data, that argument just doesn't fly even with the, the public, even uh, in districts where there's not nearly as much support for the death penalty.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would agree with the senator in the fact, but I also think, I, I don't think anybody walks into 7 Eleven and goes, if I shoot this clerk, Matt Powell may seek the death penalty on me. But it deters that individual that committed the offense, and that's who I think you're really trying to deter. Uh, and And I think it has it obviously has an impact on that individual, and so I think that 's a stronger argument as far as the term is concerned.
5: Besides- Brandon's being soft on crime, hug a thug, all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, D.A. Watkins in Dallas has had basically an exoneration project where he has exonerated I don't know how many people. I think he probably talked to that. That worries me a little bit that the state of Texas, as Senator Ellis said, we can't get anything right except a death penalty for some reason. In the Cameron Todd Willingham case, uh, the governor actually said, well, yeah, but did you know what kind of bad guy this was, which has absolutely nothing to do this conviction at trial. So, given the political realities of this, thank Given the political realities of this, um, what would be wrong with putting a moratorium on the death penalty until we get, figure out we've got this right? I just can't believe that Dallas County is the only county that thinks they need to come and look at exonerations. This has to be rampant. I think the disproportionate uh, assignment of the death penalty to African Americans is troubling as well. So, I don't know if I have a question in there, but just. <laughs> There's several things that's trouble me about this whole thing when we like to portray ourselves as, you know, uh, as being fair and honest with the, with the public. There are political realities to this, and if you're running for higher office, you want to be seen in a conservative state as being soft on crime. So is, is that a valid concern, or that's something I shouldn't worry about at night?
3: Just from my vantage point, uh, first of all, D- Dallas County does not have a moratorium on the death penalty. I mean, there are death cases that sure. come out of Dallas County. But look, I, I just think it's more constructive for one to put that energy into trying to improve the system. I just don't want to gloss over the reference that Catherine made to appointed lawyers. you All y'all grew up watching Perry Mason, other than my young friend here.
0: <laughs> and Della Reese
3: passed him a note. He said, I object. If the judge puts you on the case, you're not going to argue with the, the, the person that hired you. I mean, that's just just sleazy and it's old school. Uh, I'm proud of what they're doing in Lubbock, of all places. To use the regional. What? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, no, normally, you, you would think that that would come out of a more enlightened, urban, uh, well, at well, least an urban. Phone. You're, re- you're not going to get <laughs> out of this. You're <laughs> well, I mean, but, you know. well, come on, for you all to decide that I'll pass you don't that along, all? Senator. Yeah, they, they decide they're going to do a managed design counsel program. That means instead of the judge picking the lawyer for a poor person, somebody else would do it. So you're not the referee and a manager. Now, you are having issues where some counties are pulling out of the Capitol office because they, they're keeping people from getting the death penalty. That, that is a problem. But I just think it's better to put the energy into trying to reform the system. A moratorium, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a bill in the Senate. I've seen them in the House, and they never get the light. They, even my little bill to just let a governor do multiple reprieves somehow the anti-death penalty folk who were mad at me since I, I chaired the board of this project in New York, it's the national one, not the one in Texas, they were mad saying, how could you be for the death penalty? So they, they turned my little multiple reprieve bill into a moratorium bill. <laughs> and then a bill that I, I think I'd gotten close to getting out of the Senate at one point got that tag on it. So I just put the energy into reforming the system.
2: But I don't think it's such a bad idea to have a panel look at the Texas death penalty, I mean, we are the biggest user of the death penalty in the United States. And for us not to have looked at in a comprehensive way of how we've used it, and our whole problem with innocent people on death row, is I think an abdication. Um, You know, I am always interested in the fact that people from other states that are carrying out executions want to tour the death chamber and learn from Texas prison officials how to legally inject people um, but you know what they're not coming from afar to look at how our criminal justice system operates because we've had some really publicized terrible lapses like say Charles Dean Hood's case where the prosecutor and the, and the judge had had a sexual affair and Guess who got screwed during this trial. <laughs> you know, that was not good, right? Um, and, and we, and, and our, I think our failure to comprehensively evaluate those problems and say, how can we do better in the future? And I, and, and I say that to you as someone who heads an organization that's not abolitionist for law reform. So for us, the idea of taking that comprehensive look seems, it's about time, um, you know, what is it, 32 years after, mm-hmm. um, you know, the first lethal injection post Furman in Texas. And, 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 you know, unfortunately our state has rejected, um, our legislature has rejected the idea of an innocence commission, um, but I, But we've I said, gotten close. We've gotten close, but we, how much money do we spend on this criminal justice system? I mean, when a plane goes down, the National Transportation Safety Board is out there saying, what happened? And why aren't we doing that here? We, we really owe it to ourselves economically, I would think, at the very least, to say, well, what went wrong? How can we do better next time or prevent it next time?
3: So I'm just saying if, those re- if the focus is on those reforms and if many of those reforms are put in place and you still have the exonerations that were t- – science is going to solve a lot of these issues over time. It just takes time. But I just wouldn't leap to, saying do a moratorium. I'm sorry, but, you know, I I was on the slide rule team. I can count. The votes are just not there. So I wouldn't put my energy into that and take away from the limited amount of time that I have to put into trying to put reforms in place.
6: Thank you all. I think you've all added to the issue, and I'm glad that you all were here today. And I don't want to put Mr. Powell on the spot because... (laughs) My friend, George Gilkerson, says he's one of the good guys. But I did understand you say earlier, kind of going back to the beginning of probably when you were first DA, that you tried an open file, and it wasn't popular.
1: No, I, mean, I didn't say it wasn't popular. I oh, mean, I mean, we just did it before anybody else did it. OK. Well,
6: I know that when I was first assistant in Amarillo, we had an open file. And we recognized the duty, which is incumbent on the DAs today. And sadly, I know that it's been kind of a mark of accomplishment among some pretty hot-shot DAs, uh, some who have been selected as District Attorneys of the Year, to hide evidence. And I'm not saying that you've ever done that. I'm just saying that's a problem that needs to be policed through your own organization, the District and County Attorneys Association. Well,
1: and, and actually, we did. Uh, if you'll read a report that we did because of some of these issues that were coming on, I sat on the committee, that we, we did it in response to uh, a paper that was done out of California. Uh, and we looked at millions of cases uh, where there was accusations of prosecutor misconduct and things like that. came down to uh, that there were actual four were, that were cited for misconduct. That's four too many. I, 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 let me be the first to tell you that I think that's four too many. Uh, you know, it's a, we've talked a lot about our system. I, I think it's the greatest in the world, uh, but it's a system built on people and people are going to make mistakes. You're going to have sorry ones that do things that are improper, that are, just not more, that are more than a mistake. We saw that in Morton, in the Morton case. Uh, we've seen that in some other cases. Uh, but I think that's the exception to the rule. I think there are things that are not turned over, uh, but they were, not, they were shown not to be on purpose or things like that or, or a prosecutor hiding evidence. So I, I do think that those are, those are issues, but I think they're very rare. Do you
6: see any need for a internal policing and I know district and county attorneys hate that because I've been in that position but any sort of standard that you know would clear a prosecutor uh, where they in our case back in the 60s soon after Brady versus Maryland, we had them sign and initial everything in the file that they copied and um, do you see any need for some sort of mechanical thing that would Absolutely require, and, and it would make a firmer case from your standpoint.
1: Yeah, you, you have it now. Uh, the Michael Morton Act uh, is now requiring uh, that that was passed in the last legislature is now requiring uh, that there has to be an accounting, whether it's a plea or whether or not it's a trial, there has to be an accounting of what's been turned over, what they've received, and things like that. We did it. Uh, we, we had it in place because ours is on, like I said, on computers, and so when they open it up, we know that they've seen it. Uh, and that's how we and we would we would file that as a matter of course uh, on what we've been what we've turned over to and what we haven't. Now through the Michael Morton Act, you have to make an accounting of what you've turned over. I'm so, familiar
6: with that, and I think and, and it was a good good act, absolutely. Yeah. But I hope
1: um, we keep it. Yeah, there's so, going to be some. Because there'll be an effort yeah, there's from, going to be pushback. There's not going to be an effort from the prosecutors, and, and I've heard you know we've heard that, that that prosecutors are going to come trying to change that. It. Uh, it's not the prosecutors have been griping about it. It's defense counsel that's been griping about it. I think uh,
2: you need to read your list, sir.
1: Yeah, uh, thank well, you. Uh, thank you for your comments. <laughs> we we can sure do it too. We can sure listen to who's making the who's who's making the complaints about it. I can promise you. Okay. Uh, not us. <laughs>
6: thank you for your comments. I appreciate it.
2: Um, Can you hear me? A little bit. Then now. Uh, My question echoes back to the drugs that are being used. Um, I'm a veterinarian, and so euthanasia and lethal, lethal injection is part of what I do. And we don't have any issue getting the drugs for animals. And sadly, we've had situations where people have stolen the drugs to commit suicide. So I know that what we use for animals would work in a person. So why is it that you all can't get what you need? Well, uh, well, part of it is that as the drug manufacturers became aware of what the drugs were being used for, they apparently chose not to sell to prison systems in the United States that were using the drugs for lethal injection. So what was happening was uh, initially they knew they were getting orders they didn't know what it was being used for as that was made known to them then they decided they were not going to sell
0: and in europe there was a you know there had been sort of an organi- you know an organized campaign to make drug manufacturers more aware uh, that these drugs were being that's what they were used for and so you had corporations shutting out it's interesting that you're uh, in you're a veterinarian or you, uh, a lot of the drugs that are tried in you know that are being used in the execution system, you know, are coming from the veterinary um, world, and it is a very interesting you know the compounding industry itself too, has you know also makes drugs for veterinarians also. So there is kind of this sort of cross platform between the two drug worlds right now, and it is interesting because you know a veterinary can get these drugs, but you, you know once you say you're a prison, everyone's backing down. And even in the compounding industry, you know, as soon as they figure out that the initials on a label you know, belong to a prison system, not everybody knows what TDCJ is. But once they do, they have been balking about uh, letting their, making the drugs for the prison systems themselves. We've seen this, we saw this a year ago with a Houston compounding pharmacist that asked for the drugs back. And TDCJ said, said no. Naked?
2: It's so sad then, though, because, you know, of course, it seems very humane what we do for animals, but then if you're having to use lesser quality drugs for a person.
3: Well, I, I think people who were opposed to the death penalty were probably threatening to, to market protests. I mean, so those manufacturers were worried about market share. Right. Uh, particularly in Europe. So I think that was the, the issue.
0: But the
2: other thing about veterinarians, and this is just something you may not be aware of, but um, when we were using the three-drug cocktail in Texas to kill people, um, veterinarians had repudiated that exact cocktail for euthanizing animals because there was a problem with um, whether it was this cocktail which involved the use of a paralytic functioned effectively and whether there was suffering. So, in fact, I think um, there was a national body for veterinarians that came out against using this 3 drug cocktail on animals, and Texas actually, I can't remember if it was by, by regulation or by, by statute, outlawed it for use in euthanizing animals. But people, for a long time, it was quite okay in Texas. So, I mean, and this too, around this topic, I mean, this deserves more discussion among us, because, again, this is something the state does in our names, and... We ought to understand it and know about it. So,
0: thank you. I think we're all out of time. I really appreciate you all coming. Thanks again. And thanks to our panelists. Good to meet you. You guys were great. All I had to do was like.